Welcome to Veterans in Academics. This podcast highlights people and topics where the veteran experience and academia overlap. Join your host, Dr. Luke McLeese, in this groundbreaking content. Each week, we explore new stories, topics for you. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Veterans in Academics. I'm your host, Dr. Luke McLeese. And as always today, we are joined by a very special guest. And our guest today is Hira Byrne Pollen. And she's studying uh, at the, she's doing her doctoral work at Northern Illinois University. And uh, well, I just want to say, Hira, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me today. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Hira, can you tell, uh, can you tell the audience a little bit about yourself in a couple sentences, ma'am? Sure. So I am a rehabilitation counselor certified. Um, so I work with the full spectrum of people with disabilities, not just mental health. And I specialize in working with service-connected veterans, um, particularly those who have been medsept or retired. Um, and predominantly it's helping develop a post-service disability identity. Um, and finding their place in academics or in the career industry they want to land. Very, very interesting. Very awesome. That's great work. Uh, I really, I really personally appreciate what you're doing. So, Hina, tell us. So, uh, let me let me give the listeners a, a quick uh, little background. So, you are the spouse of a United States Marine. Bless you, lady. Bless you. Um, and tell us, what, what, what do you see in the realm of higher education with your job, with the work that you're doing uh, academically, and then your experience, what do you see that uh, spouses of military-connected pop- or military-connected population spouses are doing well in higher education? Well, one of the first things I see is there are a lot more spouses pursuing degrees, um, and we've had that shift where the military spouse is not your 1950s housewife anymore. Um, And we've even progressed what the stay-at-home mom means. Um, So, you know, we've really gone beyond that. So we have lots of spouses, whether they're male, female spouses, they're out there doing their own thing. They are pursuing associates, trade degrees, going for their bachelor's and advanced degrees, um, and diversifying higher ed with that perspective. Um, we are a very transient population. So we're requiring higher ed institutions to be ready to work on uh, increasing trans- transfer uh, programs and courses and trying to find a way to make it easier where spouses in active duty um, aren't having to start from ground zero every time they relocate. And so I think that's a big piece. We are pushing higher ed to think more globally Um, The pandemic has done that as well. You know, how are we doing this online learning? Can we let somebody start in an institution, move away and still complete their degree? Um, And I think that's a piece that military spouse community is contributing. It's that progressive thinking within how do we meet the need of today's student body? Um, And, you know, not just looking at benefits from the service member perspective, but again, what does it look like for dependents? How are we looking at scholarships and and things, and again, uh, addressing, you know, what is uh, military pay, because a lot of times scholarships and certain things are tied to rank, 
Um, and, you know, that may be great when somebody does just a four-year contract or something like that, but we do have spouses who are attached to service members who stay in longer um, and assume higher ranks, and it can become harder to find funding because um, they just don't qualify for those, e, you know, E4 and below scholarship programs. So I think it's just creating a new landscape on how are we supporting people who are, are looking to go into programs, having to move around the country, um, and, and wanting these degrees that are truly flexible. You know, we, we even looking at how we do internships and apprenticeships um, for as part of your curriculum requirement. Again, how are we doing that either in a distance modality or, or supporting them in some way where they can complete that wherever they're stationed? I love this answer. I love this answer. And I will say, uh, I have noticed too, some things line up with exactly information that and instances that I've been exposed to. For example, um, on the very, like the cusp, the very cusp of the COVID pandemic, I was in Philadelphia at the CCME conference. And one of the things that I noticed were a lot of the sessions and more so than in years past were geared specifically towards uh, military spouses. And one of the things that I remember going to one of the sessions and, and hearing about was specifically uh, what you mentioned with transferable credits and getting institutions to realize like, look, somebody might have gone to five, six different schools. Um, you got to figure it out, <laughs> right? <laughs> They're coming to you. They could potentially, uh, you know, complete a degree with you. You got to figure it out and accommodate uh, someone who literally is, uh, ha there has no control over, over that. And, and oftentimes, you know, are very strong students, but uh, just have circumstances where they need to move around. So I love that you said that. And I love that you, you know, you mentioned specifically that you all are the ones putting the pressure on the organizations, right? Because I think often that's really how it gets done. When people hear high up administration, like this is the real need, uh, that's where the change can start to happen. So I love that. So on the other side, ma'am, what is something that spouses could do better? in the realm of higher education? You know, it's interesting because, you know, most of my work has been with the um, veteran side of the house and, you know, specifically the disabilities component. Um, and what I think also gets left out of that is considering the mental health, well-being, and disabilities of spouses as well. Right. Um, and so when we look at the way spouses are navigating higher ed, um, and again, I think this is also a, a kind of a reflection of the way veterans programs work. They are usually called military veteran programs. Um, often, some do add that, you know, military affiliated or that they add the word family, dependents occasionally. Um, but I think there's still that weariness of do I qualify to go for some of these programs because I'm not the service member. Right. Um, and so having that confidence and pointing that out, if it is the case, if there is that barrier, then bring it to that institution's attention. But again, speaking up and saying that may feel uncomfortable, especially if you're like, well, I'm only here for a short time. Do I really want to, you know, um, ruffle feathers if I'm not going to be here long enough to even maybe see this thing through? So I think that's one of the barriers and challenges that spouses are still facing um, when it comes to higher ed is, is finding that little bit of advocacy on, 
um, how to make sure that their needs are being met too. Um, from my side, I have seen a lot of spouses who come in for disability services um, because there's a high prevalence of mental health associated with um, the community as a whole, but also in the spouse side, not just again, the service member, but you have spouses who are dealing with anxiety, depression, um, especially tied around deployments and reintegrations and things like that. Um, you know, and so you have those people that also may not even realize just like the service members don't, the family members don't realize they qualify for these programs. And in particular, campus disability services, we can always do a temporary um, disability. Um, and again, this is all related to, you know, an interactive process. You actually have to connect with your campus disability services, have a conversation. There is, you know, usually some documentation that helps, but again, we can do self-report. But again, I don't think even in these moments now that some spouses realize, hey, if I'm having trouble while my spouse is deployed, my anxiety is up, I'm having these real issues with the caregiving, if there's that component in there, maybe there isn't, but um, that they qualify for some of these things. So I think there's a lack of awareness for how to holistically not only support veterans and military, but their spouses as well. Despite us being uh, military friendly, I still think there's a big gap to being military inclusive. Um, and again, from the disability world, I look at that as, you know, Friendly is, okay, we'll accommodate you. We'll think about you after the fact. We'll think about you once you raise your hand and say, hey, I need something. Whereas inclusive is already factoring that person into the original plan. So they don't even have to ask. They have already been thought of and acknowledged and counted as worthwhile to invest in and make sure that whatever the service is, whatever the activity is, we've already included your need in it. So, you know, while we see those gold stars of I'm military friendly, I think Across the board, a lot of programs, campuses are still not at the point of true inclusivity. Amen to that. I could not agree more. And I, I tell you, I think this is part of it. I think uh, prior to 2005, really nobody had anything set up, right? And then uh, after that, like between 2005, 2008, people start going gangbusters to, to try to accommodate veterans that were coming in lar very large numbers, right? And it was more so than I think I've read than since World War II into higher education. So, but what has happened in that, uh, trying to figure that landscape out, it's almost as if many uh, institutions have been frozen right there, right? And they've not thought about Okay, well, this means the entire family. What about the family that could completely be third culture type families? They might be children that are U.S. citizens, but have never lived in the United States, <laughs> you know? And it wasn't until their parents retired that they might be experiencing U.S. soil. Uh, you know, and I think one of the things that a lot of schools have done recently is they have started to include these populations, but like you said, they don't label it. You know, uh, it's still labeled veteran services or military and veteran services. And, and you're right, when some higher education looks like a very big thing from the outside looking in, right? And if you're young or you've never experienced before, or like you said, you don't wanna ruffle any feathers because you might be leaving in a couple of years, it can be very, very intimidating environment to, to say like, okay, am I included here? <laughs> what, do, what do I get from the get-go? So I love that you're mentioning that because um, it's like, while we've come a very far way, we've made a lot of positive progress, 
there's still so much more that needs to be done and really needs to be done for the complete picture of the military and post-military service experience for everyone. Yeah, I love it. Um, I mean, I don't love the situation. I love that, that you're on it, though, with the answer. <laughs> <laughs> so, Hida, tell us a little bit about, um, you know, you've, you've, you said in the beginning that you've got this niche that you've worked out, right? And, and really, when, when you talk about it, you're talking about uh, military-connected people, right? You're talking primarily, probably the majority, uh, adult learners. And then you're talking about people that have specific type of accommodation needs uh, to level the playing field and, and give them what it takes to be successful or different type of learning needs. How, how are you approaching that and how do you meet that and, and what has inspired you to kind of undertake all this? <laughs> oh boy, loaded question. Yeah, I'm, sorry. Uh, I'm sorry. So yeah, so what's interesting is I'm actually not from a, a big military family. I'm actually yeah. not even from a big military state. I'm from New England. Um, and uh, nobody other than my, you know, grandparents really served. So both of my grandfathers were in World War II. Um, and one in particular, my grandfather, um, Ambassador Frederick Irving, uh, was shot down on his 37th mission. He was in the Army Air Corps. Um, and shot down oh, over wow. Hungary. Oh, and um, he was a, a, a navigator on a B-24 bomber. Um, and so, you know, they're like sitting ducks up there. Um, and yeah, he was shot down. He always credits the uh, Tuskegee Airmen for saving his life oh, because wow. they were accompanying the mission and managed to fly around and, you know, keep off the German fighters while his men and himself, you know, parachuted down to the ground. So, um, we grew up hearing about that and having that respect for the military, anyone who sacrificed, you know, and, and, and you know, that everybody serves in the uniform, you are all the same. And my grandfather of that era had a hard time with the way the Tuskegee Airmen were treated. And so he always, um, you know, made sure we knew and always made sure that we said that's part of his story. He is here because of those men that never really got credit during the era in which they served. Um, and so I always grew up with a healthy respect for the military. I personally would never survive boot camp myself. So I didn't plan to join ever. Um, but my grandfather had a very successful career, obviously, post-service. Um, he rose to an ambassador of the United States. He worked for um, the Kennedy uh, School at Harvard when he retired from the Foreign Service after all those years. Um, and so he had had, like many of that generation, great success. Um, but he had late in life adjustment to his service connected disabilities. Okay. Um, and he never even, I think even used those words himself again, because of the generation. And, and I, I think there's still always that stigma around, you know, who are you? But my, my grandfather did battle depression. Um, and he had physical ailments. Um, when, when he was captured, they tried to kill him and he got hung twice, tw twice it failed, but he had residual back oh, issues gosh. from it. Um, and obviously just from, you know, jumping out of plane. Um, so he had a lot of physical, you know, stuff. And then, and then, you know, from surviving the POW camp, um, being marched and moved from one camp to the other, because as you know, the forces were coming, they moved the prisoners. Um, so he was at Stag, I can never pronounce it right. The Stalag left the third field, basically the great escape camp. That's okay. where he was. He was freed okay. by Patton's army. 
or liberated by Patton's army. Um, so he, he saw a lot of really difficult things um, in his time as a POW. And I think it wasn't until he truly slowed down that that's when it all processed for him. Um, because he worked, I mean, he worked for decades after service. And I don't think until the quiet happened, he was like, wait a second, what did I go through? My body's feeling things. So I watched his progression and, you know, he was telling stories to us at our, you know, the Thanksgiving table every year, one year we stupidly us, you know, grandchildren complained about it being too cold to go for a walk. And he told us a horrific story of him walking in the cold and, you know, watching his fellow service members, you know, die in the snow next to him. And we were like, crud, grab your coats. Grandpa just told the story. How dare we, you know, complain (laughs) about a little cold. Right. Right. But what was interesting is my mom on the walk said, you know, my dad never told us those stories growing up. So he started sharing much later and even his own children were hearing things for the first time that, but we as grandchildren just got to hear like, Oh, this is normal. This is just how grandpa talks. So it was very interesting to watch that happen. And I grew up in a family with um, four siblings with congenital disabilities. So their disabilities are who they are from the day they were born. And my parents are strong advocates. um, And my my siblings are are very awesome, independent, fabulous people, right? Um, And empowered because of how they grew up and their disability was just who they are and they're proud of it. Um, But I watched my grandfather struggle. And so that piece of that difference of, you know, acquired versus congenital was very interesting to me. Um, and, and then I accidentally married a Marine, despite the fact that I said I was never going to marry somebody in the military. I was never going to leave New England. Life happened. So um, just basically after I finished community college um, at Holyoke Community College, I, tra- I got to use a transfer pathway and I went to Springfield College. And they had a rehabilitation and disability studies program. And I was like, this is my niche. I want to focus on this. And I don't want to do mental health. I want the spectrum because service-connected disabilities are not just mental health, um, as I saw with my grandfather. Um, And so there, I also then was able to complete my master's in rehabilitation counseling. So um, I've become a certified rehabilitation counselor, and I've I've specialized in working in, you know, that identity, that pre-post self. So you enter the service as one thing. And if you're medically separated or retired, or you just end up with, you know, pretty substantial, you know, accumulated service-connected disabilities by the time you retire on your own decision, um, you have a a pre and post self, the person who entered and now the person who has to adjust to whatever is on the other side. Um, And so you're not only then going through the veteran transition, but you're also going through this how, who am I now with these particular disabilities that may further impact me in a way that I never thought I was going to have to think about post-service. I was just going to go do X, Y, Z. I was going to go be, you know, still, you know, gallivanting around the world and doing things, whatever the goal was may have greatly shifted depending on what the disabilities are. Um, and so that's kind of where I, I, you know, especially once I married my husband, it was like, it was kind of just a very natural fit to continue working with the military community. Um, and, and, and now I was graced with seeing, here's somebody on active duty, here's somebody going through the actual transition phase, and here's the veteran. Because I think they are three distinct phases right. that we lump into one, and the identity is different in each of those as well. Right. So like my husband was injured and had surgery, while in, but he's still in. And he hated being injured and on limited duty 
And, you know, you know, he's a Marine, so he managed to get himself off Lindu early just to go to the next field op. Um, he's a tank. He was a tanker. They're decommissioning it now. He was with first tanks. And just that notion of him processing who he was in the short window, feeling incapable because of what he was experiencing. I know many people on active duty go through that when they're on this Lindu period and they feel like they're falling behind and they're missing out on whatever it is, potentially missing out on a deployment, whatever. And then you have the transitioning service member who's saying, oh yeah, now they want me to go to Vogue Rehab. They want me to do all these different things. I didn't factor this into the transition plan. And then you have the veteran who's saying, I am going to have to do a career pivot. Oh, I might have to go back to school. I don't quite know the direction I want to go now. And they might not even know how their disabilities may be impacting them till they, they get to the place of employment, until they sit in the classroom. Because the VA rating is really just here's a percentage, have fun with it. You know, here's a benefit, here's a, here's a monetary attachment to it, but that time to really talk to somebody about what does the functional aspects of disability mean is kind of left out. And I think that's where the rehabilitation counseling field really comes into play um, because we're here to say, let's talk about these functional impacts. So that really led me to wanting to help, you know, student veterans and those into employment figure out what are those functional impacts, not to say deficits, but functional impacts. Right, because, right. Um, you know, Dr. Martin spoke earlier on one of your podcasts and, and really emphasized, you know, we have this, um, we have to think about the, the veteran identity as bigger than just, just being a veteran. We all have more that we bring to the table. Right. And he also talked about the dangerous dichotomy of hero versus completely broken right. um, veteran. And, that deficit model is just as equally potentially damaging as the heroic, you know, standard that we're going to hold people to. And so when I talk about functional impacts, it's not that you can't do stuff. It's again, we may need to look at doing it a different way. So still capable, but let's just rotate the table a little bit and, and make sure we're doing it the way that you're going to have the most success. So really what I try to do is help veterans understand what are those functional impacts how may they be accommodated? What do accommodations mean? How do you request them? And then again, how do they translate to the workplace? Um, because you start in, in education right. and we shouldn't just be talking here now in this moment because education ideally is gonna be a launching pad. It's, right. that it's, you know, there's a next step after it. And if we're only talking about this and not thinking a few ahead, then we aren't really preparing them. We're not really educating the whole person. So, you know, okay, let's talk about this now. So um, that's what I do more for my direct disability counseling role um, in higher ed. And then I've also worked on um, a project with uh, the Deaf Tech, um, okay. which is a um, <laughs> National Science Foundation, Advanced Technological Education Center of Excellence. Whew, that's a long one. That um, is. <laughs> and it's housed in the uh, National Technical Institute for the Deaf, one of the nine colleges of Rochester Institute of Technology. And they specialize in um, preparing more deaf and hard of hearing individuals for the STEM careers. And in 2017, they were like, we want to expand this to student veterans because many people don't even realize that hearing loss and tinnitus are two of the most common service-connected disabilities because that can be acquired really anywhere. You're near a lot of loud equipment. There's, you know, you think about being on the ranges. There's so many ways to have that impacted. 
And when you go into higher ed, a lot of the classes are lectures. And so if you don't even realize you have hearing loss or you're, you know, you may not realize the level and now you're sitting there trying to listen to the instructor and they keep turning to the whiteboard or whatever it is, walking around the classroom, all of a sudden you're not catching half your lecture. And so Deaf Tech having their resources, working with high school and predominantly community college students for um, employment in STEM said, you know, we can also support veterans. And a lot of veterans go into STEM. And I know one of your um, previous speakers mentioned, I think that was also um, Jared, um, you know, I was talking about the industries people go into and the majors. Um, And so we're here and we're doing not just helping veterans, we asked them to participate in, we developed the top 10 things student veterans would like faculty to know. We wanted their feedback. What do you think faculty need to know about your experience in the classroom as somebody with hearing loss? And um, we wanted to bring their voice, amplify that voice, because again, the professionals can talk all they want, but who matters? It's the actual person with that lived experience. So Um, We do that. We provide professional development because we're trying to increase military cultural competency. And um, Dr. Sullivan talked about that. We need to keep continuing to um, not just educate the veterans and the transition service members, but we need to educate the people that they're going to go interact with. Um, That cultural component of the military needs to happen. And from the disability side of the house, again, what is acquired disability? These again, they're still adjusting. So we provide that, we share with them, you know, both what the veterans say, we do a survey um, of their student veterans before we go out there. Um, And it's really to help people understand how some veterans are navigating the space. And I think one of the challenges too is whenever I say I'm a disability counselor, I work with veterans, the first things people are always wanting to talk to me about is mental health. And it's a huge component but it's not the only component. And I think we still think of our original, you know, immediate post 9-11 veterans. And I don't even think higher ed knows we've moved on to a new generation. Right. Um, And that's, that's challenging, right? Because I mostly work in the um, community college setting. And I'm sorry, by now, most post 9-11 veterans are bachelors in advanced degrees or done. (laughs) You know, they're, they've, they're already through the education system. So um, raising that awareness that hearing loss can be impactful, um, that these other disabilities are there. Chronic pain is a high one. I mean, we, when we do our survey, typically our top six at every institution are hearing loss tonight is chronic pain, sleep disturbances. You still have PTSD in, in, in there, but it's not usually even the top three most common. Um, so really just trying to demystify who is our veteran population? Our service-connected veteran population is is what I do, um, and and just trying to increase both empowering the student veteran in their journey in, in developing their disability identity using whatever words they're comfortable with, learning about services they qualify for that they may not realize as, as a person with a disability. You're actually protected beyond the VA. You know, you you fall under Americans with Disabilities Act, and just knowing that you know, sometimes they're like, wait, what, what's that, you know, and, and expanding that knowledge that you don't just have to go to the VA, there's community-based programs, state-based programs that are developed for you that you now qualify for. And then the flip side of that is also working with the professionals and saying, are you military cultural competent? Do you understand that these are, yes, your non-traditional students, yes, your adult learners, yes, many first-gen, 
but they also come from a culture and we have to respect it. And I think, you know, that's what um, Dr. James um, has always talking about was, you know, you need faculty buy-in. And with DevTech and our, our work, Project Good to Go, um, teaching student veterans with hearing loss, our professional development is really geared towards the faculty because student veterans are in your classroom, but they may not be walking into vet services, disability services, or any other stuff on campus. Um, and faculty are your first line of defense to supporting our student veterans. So we need to get them to actively want to learn about this population, to understand their needs, to break the silos of, you know, staying in their own lanes and really finding a way to do a holistic support system. Um, because I think a lot of times too, veterans, when they aren't aware of how their disabilities are interacting, them, may assume that their failure of academic success is because they aren't smart enough when really it may be a simple accommodation that would have made the difference so they could have continued learning. And right. so that's kind of where I'm passionate of just making sure we aren't letting certain people fall through the cracks, making sure faculty know we're there um, and wanting to, to empower everybody to kind of learn more. I think we have all these trainings for lots of other marginalized groups, which is very important, but we don't always consider the veteran group within that. Um, you know, you choose, oh, you have, you know, on professional development day, you have the LGBTQ plus community one, you have one for, you know, the BIPOC community, you have, um, your first gen one, and you're trying to pick which one to go to, which community to care about. And sometimes there's not even a veteran option presented. Right. And I think that's a real, and I, and I see the work that many of the people who come on your podcast are doing in, in closing that gap, but encouraging faculty to understand that veterans are a cultural group that require just as much attention and understanding as those other groups. And guess what? As Dr. Martin said, you're going to have veterans in each of one of those other cultural groups. Absolutely. So those intersectionality of identity are important. And so also when I do my disability, you know, if I'm doing any professional development training for campuses, it's from a disability, you know, from my role as a disability counselor, I'm talking about disabilities, but I'm also talking about those intersectionalities. We have to talk about how a person with a disability can also be XYZ LMNOP. So we can't just say this silo is the only place they're going to get assisted. So that's kind of how I, I ended up doing my professional work. Um, my research is, is stemmed from my grandfather. Um, as I said, he struggled with his um, disabilities late in life. And um, my research focus at Northern Illinois University is on mo military moral injury, um, which has become more well-known. Right. It um, really began with Dr. Jonathan Shea and his work with Vietnam veterans um, and looking at the betrayal of leadership in high-stakes situations. It got expanded by um, Litz and colleagues in 2009 when they, you know, added to it that it's the, uh, you know, you are um, violating deeply held beliefs, right. Um, right. both as perpetrator, both as a witness, and just in general, this betrayal that people can experience. And I had heard about the topic. Actually, I went to the California Community College Veterans Summit, and they played the video Almost Sunrise, and which was a, a documentary made about moral injury. And I was like, wow, this is a very fascinating topic, because it's not a DSM diagnosis, but it's a very big puzzle piece to Again, a veteran transition, veteran understanding. And for me, I'm like, so how does that play into veteran disability identity? Because again, that's where I'm coming from. Right. And then unfortunately, we, uh, we lost my grandfather in 2016, actually, um, right before my husband was about to deploy. And um, 
on his deathbed, my grandfather was passed away at 95 years old and on his, his deathbed, basically, he had a moment where he started calling out. We watched his body, you know, he was pretty unresponsive, um, kind of going in and out. And in this moment, he jolted like as if he was awake and started screaming, where are they? I can't find them. Where are they? We're lost. We're lost. He just started yelling. And, you know, my uncles and aunts were in the room. My family was in the room. My husband was standing next to me. We're all watching him basically scream in terror. Um, And I looked at my husband and I said to him, I said, he thinks he's back in the war. He is lost. He's looking for his men. He's on his deathbed looking for his men. And, you know, everyone's like, you're okay, grandpa, you know, trying to sue them. And he is not in the moment. He doesn't know where he is. He is back there. So you can call it a flashback. You can call it whatever you want. But in that moment, my grandfather, I think, was truly trying to figure out where his men were. And I said to my husband, I was like, you need to call him to attention. I said, you're the only one who can do it. You need to tell him he's safe. And so, of course, my husband, in his Marine Corps commanding voice, (laughs) you know, had to, had to call my grandfather to attention. And, and, you know, basically um, I'm going to botch the rank right now. Cause I always do it wrong. Um, first versus second Lieutenant. I always, which one's higher. This, I'm blanking in this moment as we're talking, cause of, you know, the pressure's on to get this right. Um, my grandfather retired, got out as a golly gee. Anyways, first, second lieutenant, you know, Irving, you are safe. You are accounted for. And my husband is just talking and in that commanding voice and honest to goodness, the second my husband said my grandfather's name in that voice, he literally snapped to attention. We watched him freeze, stop flailing, stop. His eyes were focused and he was laying in his bed, listening to my husband talk to him. And my husband said, you are safe. You are accounted for. Your men are here with you. You, you, you know, and he repeated that like about two or three times, just saying, you are safe. We have your men. We know where you are. And it took my husband saying that. And then we watched my grandfather just relax into the bed and was wow. quiet the rest of the night. So in that moment of watching my grandfather, I said, holy crap, this is moral injury. This is him trying to figure out on his deathbed something that has probably been ruminating in him for a long time, this, whatever, if it's guilt, if it's concern, there was something in that moment that just wasn't sitting right with him all these years. So I said, I need to go explore this more. There's something there that I I personally want to learn because here again, is this 95 year old man. So if this is impacting him here decades later, what is it doing to the current generation? Right. We see this, you know, we look at Nam. I mean, good golly, you know, what happened there? And that's why Jonathan Shea did what he did in terms of research. So that drove me to, to pursue my education further and, and go explore moral injury um, and, and, and see how that ties into my disability work and see how that ties into lots of areas in which, you know, people are working with veterans. Because I think it's, it is a missing puzzle piece. I don't think it's a DSM level thing yet um i hope it actually kind of doesn't go there because I, I don't i don't think it's a it's clinical per se um and so that really drew me into into continuing and, and learning and seeing how 
to integrate that moral injury into how am I adjusting to acquired disabilities, especially if they're related to traumatic events. Um, so that's kind of what, what brought me into this world, which keeps me going every day is, is doing all of this work. Obviously I have a personal connection, but every day when I get to talk to a service member, a veteran, I think there's so much more to learn. And if anyone just stopped and talked and listened, I think we would all feel there was more to, to invest in. Um, because again, I think there's a lot of empty, thank you for your service. Um, but civilian society really doesn't know what that means. What is service? Right. Um, and we can't just think of the combat hero. We have to think across the whole spectrum. We have to start acknowledging our female veterans more, um, and that contribution. And, and again, you know, we have people who've never deployed, but they signed the dotted line. They did service and they still may have experienced things and they are still different from when they entered and when they get out. So I just hope as within higher ed too, we look at that. We can't just constantly say, we're gonna look at the combat hero in our classroom. We're only gonna focus on the PTSD veteran. Um, The veteran landscape, they are so diverse. And if we keep pigeonholing them and asking them, you have to kind of identify this way for us to acknowledge your existence, then we are missing probably 80% of the veteran population. And that's, that's a shame. So I hope with higher ed, we continue to expand. Absolutely. Absolutely. And understand these things. Uh, and, and like, like you were mentioning, uh, do more of what you've been doing with bringing all stakeholders to the table, right? Cause that's yeah. vitally important. Uh, faculty are the first people first, first in line to, to see these guys and gals in the classroom administration, uh, literally, you know, everything they do, they are serving this population too. They need to understand it for the big decisions. They also need to understand where this GI Bill money is coming from because uh, a lot of institutions are very dependent yeah. on this, you know? Uh, and, you know, I think as well as the veterans themselves, they, they need to understand. Like you said, someone might not realize that these long-term or short-term type of accommodations or whatever's needed might be available to them. Um, I know personally in, in my current role, what I see is by the time someone has realized that they need something, it is often too late. And I'll <laughs> say it like this. It's often, you know, like towards the end of the semester, uh, when they could have had uh, accommodations taken care of the very first week, uh, you know, and, and probably had a completely different experience. Mm-hmm. So I think it's like there's this big kind of all-encompassing thing that is um, better than it was. But like you have pointed out, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done. And I think um, something that you're about to hit on here with your research and combining your research to your daily job, I think is amazing um, because it's actually going to be helpful for everyone. You know, uh, I think if we're to look at the American population that goes into higher education as a whole, I think people would be very surprised at the amount of people who enter in higher ed having identified as having some type of trauma or life mm-hmm. transgression period, you know, veteran or not, uh, there's, there's very high number of civilians. Um, but then that moral injury component, you know, it's, it's like you pointed out with your grandfather and this very, very, very powerful story. Um, 
it's almost like this unidentified fabric, right? That just kind of lays lightly over all these other variables. Um, and oftentimes, just like your, your grandpa experience, it's not until the context of life has changed and, and sometimes slowed down in some ways that these kind of layers of the onion start to be, you know, peeled off. And this moral injury is laying on top of all these other different things. And uh, it, it's, it's, a hard, it's a hard thing to, to understand. I'm mm -hmm. sure you're finding this in your research. It's hard to really like label it in a tangible way. Um, but it's also so tangible that we know it's there, you know, yeah. it, it's, it's very, very interesting. And I think it's something, um, with some work that I've done before with some higher education institutions, when I mentioned the very term moral injury, I've been asked, what is this, yes. you know, and then, then we get into the, the very problem of what you mentioned before about the label of hero. Mm -hmm. Let's, let's take your grandpa, for example. Um, there's probably not too many things more heroic than stop, helping stop fascism, right? right, right. <laughs> I mean, that is, that's a heroic deed. However, the things that people have to undergo to stop fascism or had to right. undergo, man, I hope still, but, um, but at that time, you know, it's, not glamorous it's not glorious it's not something that you want to do and like you mentioned if it's often something that we have been enculturated totally against you know uh we, we were brought up uh, as just as humans uh, told not to do certain things to other humans and yeah. you know world world religions most of them all point out like you shouldn't do this so all these things that people have literally had their whole life all of a sudden they might change. Although this is where it gets extra complex. It's changed for a reason that's going to have a positive outcome. But what happens when someone's life slows down and they start unpacking all this, you know, and they start thinking about what were the others, you know, constructed ideology. Was my country right? Was their country right? Like it gets so wildly complex. And that's what I think uh, a lot of people still need to understand in higher education. Definitely. And I think one of the challenges is, again, this, this one of these components too is about moral injury is, you know, the individual self in the moment while you're in the military, again, what you're doing is the standard. That's what everyone to your left and to your right is probably right. doing. Right, right, because you're operating within rules of engagement. You're following chain of command. There are just certain pieces to moral injury that are are in that moment. You're like, I'm just doing what I, you know, I am doing what I am supposed to be doing. I'm following my job, and where a lot of times I think people have these issues, and I think this is why it's so important for people in higher ed to realize, is it's when they're being challenged after service, when people are questioning them for their actions, when people are like, well, didn't that feel wrong? No, it didn't feel wrong. I mean, yes, in essence, sure. Take, we, I'm not saying taking a life is ever correct, but you can't understand what it is like to be in those scenarios in combat unless you have stood in combat. And right. um, and again, so it's sometimes it's it's almost not even 
the moral injury almost doesn't even truly occur till after separating from service, especially in higher ed, where we do ask a lot of critical thinking. We want you to, right. to, to assess and evaluate, you know, who you are and what you are and what you've done. And so it's important for higher ed to know about this concept because it may be more prominent in, I don't know yet, you know, we don't know, but we're still exploring where, cause I don't want to say that. And then people are like, she said, um, but you know, <laughs> the fact is, you know, that's where they might be challenged. It might be challenged when they're reintegrating into their families, into their hometown communities. Again, I didn't come from a very military friendly area of the country. So I don't know what my husband's going to face when he gets out. And I don't know how that will be, but I think what higher ed kind of encourages and fosters and people could also be a challenge for certain veterans. I'm not saying all, um, but definitely there are some, um, Individuals and, and, are definitely individuals, right? Yes, yes. And that's, a true, we, that's true if they're civilian, veteran, whatever. Uh, individual still processes, perceives, and trauma and moral injury lives in their body and brain differently than the next person. It may manifest, it may not. They may not right. even worry about it. I mean, yeah, it's a case-by-case case basis, person-by-person person basis, Absolutely. And as Jared mentioned, seven months is typically the standard time in which somebody separates from the service and has their butt in the classroom. And so, yeah, they are still processing so much of who they are, what they are, seven months out, we just don't know. And um, we just need to take that in consideration when we ask, you know, we're asking a lot of people to know who they are in that moment. And right. it's okay to not know. And I think that's something veterans need to hear. It's okay to not always have the answer to the question, Right. you know? Um, because I think there's also that pressure of all these people know what they want to do. They know their majors, they know this. Some veterans do go into higher ed knowing exactly what they want. They've done their time. They're like, all right, I'm ready for the next journey and the next goal. And, but it's also okay to say, I don't know what the heck I'm studying. I don't know what career field I want to be in. I want to be something else than what I was in the military. I just don't know what that is yet. Um, and so, and again, as Ryan mentioned, for a lot of first gens, so they don't even know how other people it's common for people to change majors, but many veterans don't even know that. And because they're on the GI benefit, you know, changing majors is a little faux pas, right? right? right. So, you know, understanding that from the higher ed side, we need to know, we need to help them explore um, in, in a safe, safe way. Um, and now that my brain has calmed down from that crazy moment of trying to share that story about my grandfather, he was a, a first lieutenant. I just, every time I tell that story, I, it's so hard in the emotional part of it to remember what the heck rank my grandfather was. Um, but yeah, and I think that's part of it. You know, here I am blocking and, and trying to talk about a, a personal moment. And I couldn't even remember the simple detail of my grandfather's rank in that moment until we had calmed down a little bit. I think too, sometimes we ask veterans and we put them on the spot in higher ed and it's what may come out is not genuinely what they meant, but you evoked an emotion or a response. And so I think that's also something we have to consider when we work with military affiliated anyone um, and putting them on the spot. Um, So I I just think there's that whole component. We're still learning. And I I really do hope faculty engage more in learning and not just leaving it to the veterans resource centers and the veterans professionals on campus. Right. Absolutely. Because like you mentioned before, if, if we're really going to move towards an inclusive environment, uh, an inclusive environment is, is always changing, always striving for best practices, but always changing and always including everyone, 
even the people on the other side of the fence that are, you know, that are in the classroom teaching and, and all those staff and administration, it, it always has to be a two-way kind of synergistic yeah. street for it to really happen, you know? Definitely. And, you know, accommodating veterans, I, again, I equate this to accommodating any person with a disability, any right. person who just has something challenging going on. I think sometimes people look at the integration of veterans to campuses. Oh my God, you're asking me to do so much extra work. And no, we're, we're really not because first off, they're people. <laughs> Secondly, they're probably again, part of some of these other groups that you're already investing time into. Right. And when I look at it from a dis with the disability work, I just tell them if we just implemented universal design anyways, these accommodations, these things that I'm talking about to support student veterans are universal design practices to benefit any person with a disability and literally any student in your classroom. That's the whole concept of universal design is just removing the barriers. So I think just increasing that knowledge that, again, we don't have to reinvent wheels. We don't have to ask people to do 20 extra hours of PD a year. We're just, if we can, again, integrate veterans already into the conversation, really be inclusive, then we're not, not really adding to the workload. We are purely just doing our job and meeting people where they are and, and taking that time to truly invest in every student in the classroom. Which is true inclusion, right? And, yeah. and, and, then, and then it takes them understanding that, uh, you know, veteran is an experience and it's not mm -hmm. a label, right? Or yes. it shouldn't be a label. And so therefore uh, we should treat this experience as we would anybody else's like yes. the same as anybody else's experience. And again, that goes back to individual case by case. But like you said, uh, having a plan in place that is accommodating to everyone, right? Very important. Yeah. Very, very important. Man, Hira, you're doing awesome, <laughs> awesome, awesome, awesome work. I love it. It's very needed. Um, and, you know, there's, there's so much more. I, I think we, we could go on for a couple more episodes with this because, <laughs> you know, I, I also think that there are some interesting things and I just want to point out quickly, since we're talking about people returning back to campus post-service, mm. um, it's kind of like what you mentioned with your husband, right? Like he wanted to get off light duty as quick as possible to get back in the field. And we do, or many people do in the military often when it, it's time to, kind of do things for the collective where we'll do it for the collective uh we will get work from the collective right we, we will collaborate with our other service members however what's funny is when you get out into the civilian world uh it seems like that willingness and that openness to collaborate gets taken down a few notches right and um i have seen on campus that Often veterans won't go to, uh, like, say, an accessibility office unless another veteran has said, oh, yeah, I got an accommodation for this and you should do it, too. If you're, you know, if you need more time on a test or you need you can't hear the professor or whatever the case is. Uh, and then it's not until then where someone's like, oh, OK, yeah. I'm not going to be judged or I'm not. Uh, being, you know, weak, or I'm not, something's not wrong with me. And it, it really, and it has, I've found out, it has to come from that peer. Yeah. And that's, um, I don't remember which guest 
but I know one of your guests did talk about the importance of, of the peer to peer relationship. Right. And I think that's some part of the military culture that people aren't aware of is that word of mouth means more to anything, right. anybody than what anyone else can say. So if you really aren't learning from them and you aren't willing to hear their voice and you aren't willing to let them be their own advocates. And I say, let them be, because I think in higher ed, sometimes we say, well, I'm the expert, you know, I'm the professional. So I don't want to let you be the voice of my office, you know, and it sounds very, um, so the saying, let them be, but really some people have to let go of that control and let them be their own advocate. And it, it sounds weird to say it, but that's literally what it is. Again, some professionals are so high and tight on their titles and their whatever. Um, but, but yeah, it, you, the best way to get veterans engaged is to first off, encourage them, welcome, open up the doors to all these different things on campuses. And then, um, you know, a good colleague of mine, Terrence Nelson out of Saddleback College, he always advocates for, you know, when you have veteran work study programs, place your veterans in different departments. Don't limit them to the Veterans Resource Center. Yeah, put them at the front desk of the Disability Resource Center. Put them in the library and tutoring. Put, you know, make sure they get the opportunities to be on all parts of the campus so people see veterans everywhere and they see that they're all capable and that they can merge into these other areas. And again, if another vet walks in, they say, oh, good, I'm not alone. You know, because right. we try to make sure we have, repre- again, representation of all other cultural groups, then why aren't we doing that for veterans? And, and again, uh, my colleague Terrence does a wonderful job of that. And I think when we do talk about, you know, understanding the power of the veteran voice, um, Terrence also always advocates for um, veteran panels. You have the experts there. Right, right. Absolutely. You don't have to bring them in. You can ask willing participants to do a student veteran panel on your campus with somebody who knows military culture, ideally moderating it, um, but, but, or a student veteran who's comfortable doing it, but, you know, have a moderator, have a panel and have that discussion, have that open dialogue, be willing to be a little vulnerable and say, I don't know this. Can you answer this question for me? You are the expert in your experience. I am the professional faculty member but I still don't know what you know because I'm not you. And I think in higher ed, we need to put aside our pride um, and and say, I'm willing to sit down and listen and hear you as the expert that you are. Um, And so I think there's there's still room to do that. And again, to talk to the other identities. What's great when Terrence run panels is he he asks them not about just their academics, but again, as Dr. Martin said, their other identities. Talk to us about what it's like being a parent and going to school. Talk to us about what it's like to be working full-time and going to school. Talk to us about whatever it is you want to know that is another piece of you that has added to your academic journey. And then also, yes, how does being a veteran add to that? What is the value there? You know, how, what, if, what lessons have you taken from the military that you are now applying here? Um, and so I think, I think we just have to be a little more graceful in, in that and, and be willing. And I think too, particularly for my profession, um, disability professionals really need to know that there is a military culture, there's a language, there is a stigma, and we have to meet the veteran where they are. They don't have to be fist in the air, proud, capital D, disability person. They are still figuring themselves out, and that's okay. And we have to be willing to meet them where they are and to not shove the ADA law down their throat, to not tell them they have to go shout from the rooftops that they're proud. No, they can be silent about it. It's okay. It's their journey. 
I think our, my profession in particular wants people to be strong advocates for, with reason. Right. Um, but that may not be what the veteran wants. And I, I just really encourage disability programs before we do have that peer person refer them, before we do go out into the VRCs and say, hey, we, we have these services, you should be using them. Learn your military cultural competency. There's nothing more dangerous than a veteran seeking out those services and meeting with somebody who doesn't know anything about the military, doesn't know how to work with an adult with disabilities because special education in K-12 is miles apart from the service-connected veteran. And um, just because you're a disability expert in that does not mean you understand service-connected disabilities. You don't necessarily understand that acquired component. Um, And again, that, that, that identity transition. So that's my word of caution for professionals in the disability profession. Seek out opportunities to learn like the Veterans um, Studies program provided by um, Dr. Martin at, um, at Kentucky and, and, and just making sure that we're taking opportunities to learn um, and always grow, so. Absolutely, absolutely. That's awesome. So, man. So, so much, so much, but let's, in, in to honor your time and, and maybe to, to have you uh, again on the future to do a nice follow-up, what can we expect to see from you, Ms. Hira, on the horizon here soon? Uh, hopefully a dissertation study. <laughs> um, I'm working on my proposal. Um, thankfully, my advisor, uh, Dr. Daniel Booten, who's a veteran himself, is being very patient with me. Um, but yeah, so I'm, I'm working on my study on moral injury. I'm actually particularly focused on the Marines um, just because I, I wanted to do a one branch study. So yeah, um, my biggest uh, to do and project right now is working through that. Um, and I'm, I'm just looking for opportunities to, you know, collaborate with others who are, you know, obviously getting involved with veterans and academics and, and the professionals coming on and, and continuing to be a part of that web and network of people who are just, um, you know, changing the landscape of veterans in, in higher education. Awesome. Awesome. And I, w- I would like to uh, point out to the public that uh, I have complete confidence on you when you said, uh, hopefully a district. No, I, I know you're going to do it. <laughs> I know you're going to have a great one. And I, I know you're going to add to the needed literature and really, you know, just what you've mentioned here, there's a big gap. So I know you've got something that oh, is going to be useful. And that's, that's important. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I appreciate everyone listening. This has been another episode of Veterans and Academics. I'm your host, Dr. Luke McLeese. And today we were joined with our very special guest, Hira Byrne Pollen. And we will be seeing much more of her in the future, I'm sure. So like, like she said, she wants to network. So uh, reach out to her on LinkedIn and, and add her to your network. And, and uh, you know, uh, be engaged because I know she's engaged. You can tell she's she had she was quoting people from other shows that brought a tear and gave the hard lump in my throat. I was like, oh my gosh, wonderful. Hira, thank you so much for being with us. We thank all of you for listening. Veterans in Academics is an all-veteran production of Freedom and Prosperity Think Tank. Content creation is brought to you by Dr. Luke McCleese and Dr. Michael Bevers. Web development is by Osvaldo Vargas.